I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, a monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind threebrothersfilm.com have substantial, nuanced conversations about film in a world of hot takes. I'm Anders Bergstrom, and I'm here with my brothers, Anta and Aaron. My last name is the same as my brother. And this month, we're revisiting the past as we dig into two of the latest legacy sequels, the supposedly final entry in the Jurassic Park series, Jurassic World Dominion, and Tom Cruise's return to the danger zone, Top Gun Maverick. As always, we want to thank our listeners who have stuck with us, joining us for these conversations and continuing to read the website. Now with over a decade of writing, including hundreds of reviews, features, and short essays. We do this because we love it, but we still encourage you to give the show five-star ratings and reviews. These ratings and reviews really do help new listeners find the show, and we want to continue to grow the community of people who are joining in with the conversation. Also, let us know what you'd like to see in the future as far as video content, more frequent or shorter podcasts, or things we haven't even thought of as we're looking for ways to extend our film engagement. Lastly, creating these things takes time and money. If you've appreciated our work, even a small one-time donation through our Patreon can help us to cover the costs and keep this project going into the future. But now, without further ado, we turn to worlds of dinosaurs and fighter jets. In other words, the world of summer movies. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. We can't keep her here forever. They find her, we're never gonna see her again. We gotta protect her, that's our job. Humans and dinosaurs can't coexist. We created an ecological disaster. Ellie Sattler. Alan Grant. You didn't come out all this way just to catch up now, did you? You coming or what? Since we began this podcast, it seems like cinema has been facing one crisis after another. From the pandemic closing theaters to the evolution of streaming as the dominant platform for audiences to view motion pictures. In our June 2021 episode, we pondered whether the idea of the summer movie was dead as we cast back longingly to the summer movies of the 1990s. Of course, cinema seems to have always been in crisis. Yet, as distribution models and scheduling calendars shift and find new markets, the May-August summer movie season of the past may be obsolete much as Ed Harris's Admiral Kane suggests of human pilots in Top Gun Maverick. But the summer movie season of 2022 seems to have offered a response. Much as Tom Cruise's Maverick responds to Admiral Kane's dire prediction, maybe so, sir, but not today. Today, in summer 2022, after two years of pandemic movie going that disrupted business as usual and placed all kinds of asterisks on any kind of box office records, summer movies seem to be back. And not just superhero movies, another bugbear of this pod and possible crisis movies face. The highest grossing film of the year so far is Tom Cruise and director Joseph Kosinski's return to the Navy Fighter Weapons School, Top Gun Maverick. I've seen the film twice, despite not being the hugest fan of the original film. Maverick isn't just coasting on the testosterone-soaked propaganda fumes of the 1986 original. It's using the ongoing draw of the world's last movie star, Tom Cruise, performing death-defying feats strapping himself and his co-stars into real F-18s with IMAX cameras and capturing the G-forces and thrills of aerial combat. But it also offers compelling, if simple, human drama, leaning into the male melodrama and making it, as the advertisements claim, 
a good bet at being your dad's next favorite film. But before we get to Top Gun, Maverick, and what it says about nostalgia filmmaking and legacy sequels, we'll first tackle the latest and, at least as billed, last entry in the Jurassic Park saga, Colin Trevorrow's Jurassic World Dominion, which sees dinosaurs spreading across every continent of the planet, even as it draws together the characters from the previous five films, including the core trio of the 1993 original, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum, along with Jurassic World's Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard and plenty of others. It's an overstuffed, throw-it-all-up-on-the-screen blockbuster. In many ways, Dominion is much more the typical piece of 2022 nostalgia, in the way it extends and plays with the diegetic reboot of 2015's Jurassic World, repeating motifs and elements from the previous films, while also drawing in material from other blockbusters over the years. There is a touch of the Bourne films, James Bond, and nods to other Spielberg-produced fare such as Indiana Jones. For the first time, the world in the last three films' title is earned, as it stages dinosaur action in new environments, from the snowy forests of the Sierra Nevadas to the island of Malta. But in the end, Dominion plays it pretty safe. Too safe, really, leading us back to a contained dinosaur sanctuary in the Italian Dolomite Mountains, where the characters meet up and, you guessed it, must escape from the park or sanctuary when the greed of the latest corporate boogeyman, Biosyn, leads to disaster. At times, Jurassic World Dominion seems lazy, introducing interesting concepts and points of critique only to fall back to the safest, retreaded ideas. Its action is haphazardly edited, often abandoning momentum or resolving events too neatly by skipping over things. And, like the last two Jurassic films, it comes across as incredibly dumb at times. I'm happy to go with the idea of dinosaurs overrunning the world, but the script has human characters do and say things that are just plain silly and survive things that frankly would be a challenge for Iron Man and Captain America, let alone normal human beings. To be fair, at this point in my life, all else being equal, I'm more intrigued and awed by dinosaurs and jet planes than I am by elaborate superhero mythology, playing on my dormant affection for childhood comic book characters. But is it too much to ask that we get the bare minimum of coherence and quality in big summer movies? Clearly, I like Top Gun Maverick a lot. I've seen it twice in theaters, the first for any movie in a long time for me. But to start, what did you guys think of Jurassic World? Anton, I saw the film with you, so I get a sense of your lackluster reaction. But Aaron, is Jurassic World Dominion passable dinosaur action, or is it the worst of the Jurassic World films? So I feel like all the Jurassic World movies are dumb. Um, <laughs> it's just a question of whether the dumbness is a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> good, dumb, bad, dumb. Yeah, and I th so I thought Jurassic World, the first one, was kind of good, dumb. Like... I wouldn't say it's a great film in any way, but it, it does the job. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is dumb in a very interesting way, as Anton kind of pointed out in his essay in 2018, where it's it's very weird to make a big blockbuster dinosaur movie become a gothic haunted house film yeah. for the second half. Yeah, It's just weird. I don't know if it's a good decision, but it's a weird decision. This third one is dumb in a way that I think is most indicative of this time and era of filmmaking, which you point out. And I think it's far and away the blandest of the three it's the mo it's the one that seems most um disposable in a lot of ways the movie that people keep connecting it to right in the discussions is the force of, uh the rise of skywalker this third star wars movie which ironically okay. colin trevorrow was supposed to make and then he got fired mm -hmm. from and his screenplay the duel of the fates came out and people are like oh this would be so much better than the jj abrams version and it's like okay let, let's just put it to bed if colin trevorrow had made the rise of skywalker it would have been a bad movie because this is a bad movie like he's a bad filmmaker he's occasionally a talented mimic but he's bad 
he doesn't know he doesn't know what he's doing beyond the crassest um, impulses. And I was looking at some interviews with him about this film, and just the way he describes some of the characters, or the not the characters even, the dinosaurs is like so profoundly stupid. Where he's like, "Oh, Gigantosaurus is like he's like the bad guy. He's got a real edge to himself. It's like it's a giant lizard. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, like you're putting the, your emphasis in the wrong spots here, pal. In terms of maybe you should spend some time building out characters that make any sense whatsoever. Just rely on the fact that the dinosaurs are cool." And that's why we watch it. We like the dinosaurs. So just if you do the bare minimum with the rest, you'll be fine, which his first movie showed. This movie does not do the bare minimum. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people, I know there's been some talk on you know Twitter about people who are big fans of Jurassic Park 3. I'm not as big a fan. I still prefer the two Spielberg films. Um, but I that to me seems like an example of what you're talking about, which is just do the bare minimum. Yeah. It's enjoyable. It is what it is. This one fails even at that, I, I I do get the connection to, to Rise of Skywalker. I I have looked at the Duel of Fates script. I do wonder if some of those ideas are better, but Trevorrow's execution time and again uh, tells me that this is not a person who uh, would be able to deliver what we'd want, even with that script. But, like, I guess, uh, <laughs> not to come to the defense of him, but I, like, I just feel like he's so much worse in Dominion than he is in the first Jurassic World. Agreed. But that's because the first Jurassic World is such a slavish, uh, so con- self-consciously imitating the first one that yes. it, it, it gives it a structure, right? So when we're talking about, like, craft, one of the things, you know, we're not just talking about scripts in terms of dialogue and things like that. We're talking about the structure of a movie. And Jurassic World, in its self-conscious retread of the original, has a solid structure. It, it does. It, so Jurassic World is, I think, hands down the best of the three. And that's still not saying it's, like, a great movie or anything. <laughs> It's still like a like for me a, a modest positive. Um, I think the second one, like Aaron said, is Fallen Kingdom is more weird, more interesting than this third one. I don't know if it's better or worse. It's hard to say. This one's like the lead. I it's just the most disposable. Like I yeah. I, I I'm disappointed that like you know you bring back some of the old cast and at best I I you know I had some good laughs at Ian a few Ian Malcolm lines, but other than that like. I kind of almost forget like that I saw this movie and I only saw it a few days ago and it's not just because I saw Top Gun right after it and it just like blew it out of the water and pushed it out of my memory but it's a it's so much more sloppy it's less structured but also not only in terms of a larger narrative structure but how you even structure like individual action scenes you mentioned sort of in your keynote Anders like yeah there's like there's sort of missing pieces it seems like um, within an action sequence so one of one of Trevorrow's strengths in Jurassic World was imitating Spielberg pretty well in some of the action sequences. Like, that movie actually has some action sequences that I thought were quite good. And they're playful, and you can tell where everything is going. Um, like, you know, when the, the kids are trapped in the, the balls and rolling around. In this movie, all of a sudden, like, you get sequences, and I, characters all of a sudden be somewhere else, and I don't know where they spatially... Like when that when that action was accomplished, it just sort of skipped ahead. Like for example, um, they have to they have to escape the dinosaurs coming. They need to get up into that like high sort of um, hideout out in the park, and all of a sudden like they're so they they have the the tension of going up the ladder, and we see a few of them go up, and then all of a sudden without sort of like showing us that time has passed, everyone is up on the walkway and shuffling around, and it's not that's not just 
typical editing sort of covering over action. It's just like, it seems like you actually just missed showing what happened. So perhaps we can push the Jurassic World, uh, Force Awakens, Dominion, Rise of Skywalker analogy a little more there on the level of filmmaking. I think there was a sense in which the resurrecting a longer dormant franchise in those 2015 films, both Trevorrow and Abrams, hewed much more closely visually and stylistically to the original films, right? Like Absolutely. Ab- Abrams yes. definitely yes. he has a few of his tu- you know typical things, but he actually tries to bring in a little bit of those Lucas you know touches, medium uh, medium wide shots, uh, you know even it has a few wipes you know uh, and the stuff like that. Same Trevorrow does a similar thing. Here, you know, they, they both of them left for the second, more idiosyncratic, polarizing film. Neither of which I think, you know, are complete successes, but have some interesting things going on. And then you come back for the finale as the sort of, like, guiding hand of these things. And then it's like you, you forgot that one of the things that was good about those earlier ones was that you, you were imitating masters, in a sense. Yeah, and this time totally you're, like, agree. you're just kind of, like jumping around too quickly the editing is haphazard you're like wait where did they come from uh we forgot about this character over here uh you know in order to stuff so much stuff in oh we gotta have this character oh do you remember that person dominion doesn't even feel like it's trying to be a spielberg movie in in terms of style in terms of its its storytelling structure like i'll put the question to you guys is and and it's going to be counterintuitive to what a lot i think people would think if my framing this question with just characters being in the movie I'm not going to ask whether it would make it makes sense for like Alan Grant and Ian Malcolm to be in movie this movie. Does it make any sense for Owen Grady and Claire Darling to be in this movie? Like, what plot function do they have in this movie aside from their connection to the clone girl? I think that's it. They, I felt it feels at times like they have nothing to do with Biosyn. They have nothing to do with anything. Lockwood's brought in in order to draw them in. I actually yeah. felt that even. Other than as a sort of solution to the supposedly Dr. Wu's going to use Clara's clone stuff to, to destroy the locust plague and stuff like that. But, like, that's a, kind of, of a MacGuffin, ultimately. Um, and so it, she's Charlotte Lockwood is only in the film in order to draw Owen and Claire into the action. And you can have that scene with all, you know, five of the sort of big stars all together along with a couple new ones. Of course, they, they kind of drop, like, some of the other supporting people like Justice Smith and like I think they have a purpose because of the centrality of like that clone girl. I I think maybe the question is more of like why even have the clone girl? And I like so this one's two step we have we have two two different like plots, plot lines that are like steps removed from focus on dinosaurs. So like um, Fallen Kingdom brings in this like clone girl and at least you're okay, you know, like we're in the realm I guess of like, you know, um, bioengineering but again then this one does another brings in an additional non-dinosaur bioengineering plot with the whole um insects right the the locust plague and again like both both those things are like why do we need them in you don't. this series it's enough of a crisis that there are dinosaurs around I know. the entire planet it's like w- they introduced the this crisis? really cool idea of like now we got dinosaurs mingling with the whole population like that opening scene with the mosasaur and then we just drop it oh well, this is not that big a deal they'll be fine wouldn't that be the crisis you need to solve dinosaurs on the mainland did you guys watch i forget which movie it was in the fall but it had 
Actually, it might have been F9 last summer that had the prologue to Jurassic World Dominion. I watched it on YouTube. No, I, ne I never saw it. I never saw it. The prologue is the best thing about this movie, where it's just six minutes with no dialogue of just, like, dinos running amok, where it's, like, people at a drive-in movie theater and a T-Rex shows up. People, like, just out, like, going for a stroll in the woods, and there's just, like, dinosaurs roaming. I'm like, that is so much more evocative than anything here. <laughs> But Aaron, isn't that the opening of this movie? No, like, you get because that the opening of this, this movie video? is the weird girl doing the video documentary for YouTube. Oh, so it's different than that. It was yeah. something different. It's a than six that. minute, like just pure non-exposition visual storytelling, and it worked. I was, it got me kind of excited for this movie when it, when I initially saw it. Can I just say that, like, like I actually think Anders, you were way too generous in the keynote saying that, like, we've it finally sort of um, earns the world title. Like, I think. They in, they set up this premise that like now dinosaurs are on mainland they they're coexisting with humans around the globe and then it literally just takes everything back to an isolated setting exactly and does a dinosaurs escaping the park like it totally so they're totally fumbles and ruins that whole possibility what a big budget movie that's so small they're so yeah they ways. they abandon the most interesting concept. And in fact, it feels like there should have been a lot more steps in between. In the same way, actually, you know, again, like compared to another legacy sequel like Force Awakens, it's like you jumped over actually the part that would be interesting. It's like, how do we get from the end of Fallen Kingdom and the, the eruption of Isla Nublar and all that stuff? Yeah, a few dinosaurs a few escape. How does that but how does that become then like they're everywhere? There's one living on World, one World Trade Center and stuff, you know? Like, how I also do we get don't there? quite get how all the land dinosaurs got off North America. Is it just like the like the poachers are bringing them? It must be the because Malta, you're like on the Malta smuggling, like a fly a flying dinosaur, a okay. flying dinosaur. I get, but like okay, before we get into character, yeah. okay, like just on this topic, also of like not living up to the Jurassic World, like the world, like what has dominion over things? Is it the locusts? Honestly, yeah. <laughs> why are the locusts in this movie? Why are the locusts in this movie? I think it's supposed to be the the Ian and Malcolm, the human beings. Have dominion over, but no, but know, I'm, but like but let's even let's on two levels here. Let's like ask the question. So on a plot level, what is Biosyn doing with genetically engineered locusts? Like they, it, it never explains. Well, they, any they purpose they, no, they did. They it's, did it's explain. A, it's a throw in. It's a, like it's a so it a, a few of the films critiques. You know the the sort of like um, like Monsanto style. Yeah, I stuff. think it's sort of like it's trying to be like okay. It's the like, crop scene, right? Yeah, yeah, they specifically say they ate this crop, but they didn't eat yeah, that crop. Yeah, but that doesn't do anything because it already like it's also that well, would I be think like the, the idea was that they, sorry i think the idea is that they <laughs> no. destroy all like the crops that aren't like their seed yeah yeah and they would give them full control right monsanto if you buy their weeds they're not going to send the bugs at you <laughs> yeah well i mean so again like it's a very like it's a very um silly point of no, critique but, but, can but, we that, take but it that's one... all this film has right yeah like, but can we take it one, like even so that's just on the story level right that's on the narrative level i don't think it makes much sense at all it just kind of sets up biosyn as this gmo boogeyman but then the movie goes really really hard out of its way to saying that macy macy's the character the clone girl it's like you're your bioengineering is this great gift that we can use for the world. We can make people's yeah. lives better. Yeah. Than and I'm like, so wait a second, you just spent, you just spent, you created an existential threat, a literal existential threat out of bioengineering. Yeah. And then you say, but bioengineering people, that's good. It's like, 
Wait, yeah, wait, no, wait, it's wait, a wait, it's wait, a wait. weird. It's that like I think t- it's a good example of that Hollywood like there's no coherent um, thematic about the ethics of like bioengineering in this film, unlike a movie like Jurassic Park, which I actually think has like some coherent statements on like even if even if they're relatively like you know if you open this toolbox, be warned. Yeah, don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. Well, it's just interesting after watching that movie at, at Hot Docs that was all about bioengineering and yeah. how, like, how when you're dealing with the real stuff, it's called Make People Better, and it's just, like, but it is very, very weird. That the, <laughs> it is very weird that the film has um, almost no critique of, like, the human bioengineering, the sort of the transhumanism going on. It only wants to criticize the locust, but it's not like, or the oh, should we open up this possibility that we can, like, alter someone's every cell in their body? It's weird that, like, the whole Jurassic Park premise is that, like, once you have a, a new tool in bioengineering, it's like the potential disaster, like, always has to be weighed against any possible benefit. And they have this whole thing where, like, well, that was just because they're using it for a theme park, and now we're using it for good. But like, it, that's such a, a, like a weak so engagement Jurassic park, with these ideas. Jurassic Park is Frankenstein. It's the classic. It's the update of Frankenstein. But what where Jurassic Park and, and especially drawing, food drawing, the gods. drawing on Crichton's uh, book introduced the, the chaos thing is a key thing. Because the whole thing is not that if you make a theme park, it's going to be bad, as you say, or if you try to genetically uh, alter humans, or if you want to make GMO crops. It's not the specifics. It's that chaos means that any new technology and use of power will uh, develop in unpredictable and uncontrollable ways. Because, and because and that goes that back exactly. Movie, right? And Malcolm's the only one. It's like that's and that goes back to that idea that. Um, the problem is not any one use. It's that human beings always think that they're in control, that think that they have dominion over nature, but they yeah. don't. That human beings are just one part of the, the larger system, and when we introduce new elements, no matter how small, they introduce chaotic uh, you know, systems that will develop in unpredictable patterns. But so this movie actually um, endorses the dominion that of the title, like at at the end, it actually Which says that like Wu, Wu's like um, exercising this sort of like this whole plan of like we've taken the the technology to fully alter a human's cells, and we're going to apply this to other things. Like it actually like endorses that dominion. It's not like a like watch out if we if we do that. So the idea, I you know, I think there's some interesting things about being a clone, but you're actually your own person. You're just genetically identical. But she's not actually genetically identical because her mother fixed her her DNA, right, so that she wouldn't have this disease. It's like that's full on, like you know, the, a couple of years ago, the the CRISPR babies in China. Exactly. So maybe to you know, so we can talk about other stuff, but to wrap up this idea of like the world premise. And also the thematics. I actually think one of the reasons they brought in, I mean, this is just speculation, but there's a sense that the film couldn't actually engage with um, the premise of dinosaurs upon the earth because it, it really couldn't lean into like, what would that actually mean for humanity? It doesn't want to really address the fact that like, if dinosaurs were just all over the place in a city, like we would bring in the military, we'd just be killing dinosaurs and we'd have to call them and, you know, you'd, you'd like, it just doesn't really want to engage with it in that level. 
So it instead creates like, again, this sort of like a boogeyman to become the real problem because at the end it kind of wants to have like this like um, smushy, you know, planet Earth thing where it's just like, if only the dinosaurs can live in this one special habitat, like all things will coexist well. And you're like, it doesn't really want to confront the fact that maybe the dinosaurs like don't actually have, there's, there's such a, they're like, right, like there's such a dominant force in the ecosystems that there always like will be an intense conflict with humanity, which also is dominating the ecosystem. Which is something they mentioned in the original film that it's like yeah. these, it, which actually yo, you're right. There's a whole the, line about frames separated by yeah, millions of years. We have no idea. It's uh, Laura Dern's Ellie Sattler says this right as well that you have plants in this building that are poisonous. You pick them because they look good, but these are aggressive living things that have no idea what century they're in, and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. And this idea that dinosaurs, um, in some sense, by bringing them back, we're actually victimizing them also. The dinosaurs yeah. are not purely evil, but we, we're introducing this, like... Oh, definitely. They're never uh, evil in the, in the Spielbergs. It's funny how, like, Ian Malcolm's the one who has all the pronouncements, right? In all the movies. And so in the first one, it's the... Uh, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. The second one is the, it's like, you know, Richard Hammond is like, oh, you know, we're not making the same mistakes. And he's like, no, 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 you're making a whole set of new mistakes. <laughs> you're right? Don't worry, I'm not making the same mistakes again. No, you're making, you're making all new ones. But then in, even in the fifth one, remember, he's the opening and closing, he has the trial and he's like, dinosaurs should die. I think that we should allow our magnificent, glorious dinosaurs to be taken out by the volcano. As, Silence, please. As deeply sad as that would be, we altered the course of natural history. This is a correction. And so it's just, it's funny how the, like, you can... You can take that almost on like a movie making level, right? Like the movies don't learn the lesson of the earlier movies, wow. which is like the earlier movies make the decision, like tell you how to make a movie like this and you're, you're screwing it up. But it's also on a thematic level. It doesn't want to actually wrestle with the fact that like Ian Malcolm would see the lessons of these movies and be like, it's preposterous. You just keep, don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> and they actually, that's really interesting. So the, the, the new cast actually has a different ethic towards the dinosaurs so, like, Owen, Owen is not only, um, his first thing is that he's actually too involved and he's, like, trying to turn them into, like, training them to be weapons and stuff, which would be a no-no for all those original paleontologist scientists. And then afterwards, it's all about, like, we have to, like, sort of rescue, protect, treat them kind of like pets or, like, or kind of like people. Like, they're, the movie actually, like, anthropomorphizes, like, promise blue to a way dinosaur. too much. <laughs> yeah, and that was, I, like I said to Anders, like, when we were watching this, I was just like, that sums up the stupidity of these movies versus the brilliance of the earlier ones. It's true. The earlier ones would never have had a character be like, we're going to go back and rescue it all for, like, the dino baby. And then Claire is just running around, like, you know, like, stealing. I feel the, bad for her. Well, not stealing, rescuing the babies. But, like, again, and they're trying to, they're really trying to fix what they, the character who they totally handicapped in, in Jurassic World and sort of made her into kind of like a, like a bad. She's the villain, right, basically. Yeah. The villain for choosing to be a career woman. <laughs> I, I did think it was also funny, though, that uh, Campbell Scott's Dodgson is basically uh, Tim Tim Cook. Can I say that I was happy that Dodgson was the, the Dodgson. villain? Dodgson. I, I thought that was a good I chuckled choice. when it, the... the um, but he's got the little can. 
that like he's trying to bring it with him at the end and then the um but am i not right that like campbell scott looks like tim cook and even yeah, the whole Biosyn, the round thing looks yep. like the Apple Campus and Cupertino. Like, yeah. Yep. And that was another, that's like another good good part of the movie was that like one of the few things I liked in this movie was that some of it's, you know, like they're somewhat soft, but some of it's critiques of sort of tech world I thought were good. Malcolm had a great line about like when he's like lecturing all the, the, the staff and being like, you know, you've all had way too many promotions that you've lost any sense of like being able to like stop and like think where you're at and like what you're actually involved in. But again, it's that like it's the haphazard all over the place, non-coherent critique of tech because at the same time, then it's like, it's great. We changed all of our DNA. Maybe it's maybe it's hard to or unfair to hold this movie up against the original Jurassic Park, which is actually... Well, when you everybody, bring back the cast. No, no, I know, but everybody always talks about it as like it's the ultimate roller coaster ride movie, right? And it is. It perfects that. But it's also a much smarter movie than you think. And David Kep's screenplay is really witty. Really yeah, and I were just mentioning this the other night that like David Kep could deliver a cheesy line in a movie the way it worked. I mean, like, even think of his script for we were saying Spider Man. How so many of those things have become like memes now? Like I'm something of a scientist myself, Peter. You know. Let's not let's not say Kep, Kep's not. Uh, he's not cheesy. They're they're juicy. They're juicy. They're he's he he gives actors something to do, something to no, hang they, up. They're kind of corny. Like, and you know they're corny. They're corny. Yeah. I just they think are corny. And this this is actually something that another uh, critic pointed out is like you bring back Alan Grant, Ellie Sattler, and it seems like. Unfortunately, poor Sam Neill doesn't seem to remember how to, like, ham it up enough. Like, he's not, he's too passive and, like, yeah, he's trying to play the, like... But he never sort of hammed it in the first one. No, but but he had a kind of, like, solidness, you know? The script didn't really give him anything to do. I kind of felt bad that they brought him back. Like, I was, like, I was actually really, like, I was, like, oh, you know what? Like, it was actually nice to see him on the screen as the character. Like, I enjoyed when we saw him, but then... At best, we get him to be, like, a few nods to him being kind of Indiana Jones, like, making a torch. Or the hat. In the caves. You know, the hat. I would also say, like, I did like the fact one of my favorite moments was the Dimetrodons in the cave. It's also a nod to um, Journey to the Center of the Earth. The old movie takes uh, iguanas and then puts on uh, Sodon, like, (laughs) Dimetrodon uh, But Dimetrodons are not dinos. They're pre-dino lizards. Yeah, but like, neither are pteranodons. Yeah, but can't they yeah. bring those back? No, I know, but that's why I like it. It's it expands the palette a bit. Oh, okay. Of the, also, that weird. What's that one weird guy who looks like he's got like the like fang teeth? Oh, we'll talk about him. Guy. He's the coolest. <laughs> um, no, but that's what I was saying. Is that like it, the movie does not satisfy on any of the deeper levels, any of the ones that it like hints at. But does it satisfy as an action movie? Not really. No, I will. I sadly. will say that the Malta sequence is one of the worst sequences in a blockbuster I've ever seen. It's so bad, it and mainly no because the character of uh, Kayla Watts is like the most laughably bad character that they try and make a main character I've seen. And like, I it reminds me of some things in the early 2010s when they're like shoehorning so hard. We like. We need this person to be like a cool badass. Like yeah. she, she flies the bomber. The first time you see her, I actually like chuckled in the theater because she's got these like painted on leather pants, this like lower eyes. You know, she's got the tank top and like the ridiculous bomber jacket, and her hair is like perfect. She's so made up. She's wearing like heels and stuff. Yeah, no, yeah. Like her, but her hair is like so so made up. She's like, I love bombers. I love flying. I love this, and the fact that she acts for the first while basically like somebody's vision of like a pinup that would be on the side of a plane coming to life (laughs) 
But then it goes even further because she just becomes a pandering representation person where it's like, we don't have a black lead, put her in. We don't have a gay lead, put her in. We need another woman, put her in. It's all one character. It doesn't matter if it makes any sense. And then she's also kind of trying to be like Han Solo. Like she's like, yes, rogue, like she's, she's, got she's a, a little bit goal. rogue and she's the one who's flying them to the different places they need to be, go. To be, no, but to be fair to the actress, it's not just her in the Malta scenes either. It's, no, it's it, like you get the like Spanish lady who and shows up. And why are the CIA doing like, like what is going oh, on? Oh, truly yeah, the stupidest the, character the weird, ever, uh, Rain Delacorte with his like greasy hair. He's like, I'm a smuggler, but I look like a homeless man. It's like, what is going on here? What is this? You're right. On Malta, who is the, like, the Bond, the Bond henchman woman? Yeah, her, her name, like the actor, her name is, um, like the character's name is uh, Soyona Santos. Santos. <laughs> but the actress is like um, Ditchin Lechman, like some Australian Tibetan and it, actress. And she just like had no, like, I was just like, who are you as a character? But also her and, like, why are you also, like, why are you like kind of like a, she's like sort of a secret agent and like. It's just so weird. That whole sequence is so bad. And it, it's like Anders said, it's like born. Like it's all yeah. of a sudden they're so, like, we need so to like a chase scene and Owen, is the Owen will be born. point of view shot where it jumps out of the like window. It's like Jason Bourne <laughs> in Bourne Ultimatum in 10 years, yeah. right? The great, the great jump out of the window. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that really bugs me, which I, I sort of alluded to in the keynote, is that the especially the new characters, like, and, and we see a bit of this in, it came, comes up in Fallen Kingdom quite a bit as well, like, these characters are invincible. Nobody can get hurt. <laughs> I'm like, Owen should have had hypothermia. He should be dead. Claire oh. should have been eaten. They should all be dead in Malta from, like, the number of things. Like, suddenly dinosaurs don't seem that dangerous because apparently you could just kind of, like, jump out of the way of a raptor. I'm like, no, no. So at the end at the end of the movie, um, like, you know, once they're all sort of getting better, like, Claire has, like, um, she has, like, a blanket wrapped around her and, like, a warm mug and, like, I was just like, where's, like, Owens? Like, it's just, like, why did no one, like, it's just so stupid. Like, again, like, these movies aren't supposed to be, like, realism. No. But you're like, he fell into frozen water. Plus, why did the dinosaur jump yes. into the water? Why did the pyroraptor <laughs> so, go in there? It wouldn't make any sense. To get stuck under the ice? What animal would ever voluntarily go under frozen ice to, like, This is the in? problem with a lot of these movies, right? Is that... Like you can go pretty wild and you can introduce a pretty like extreme concept and but then the rest of it has to be kind of all yeah. like fit together in the pieces. And this just decides that well, because you can have dinosaurs, then we can just do whatever we want. It's like, no, the whole point is we, we accept that you can clone dinosaurs, yeah. but then everything else has to be kinda like Do you remember how beaten up everyone looks at the end of like Jurassic Park and Yeah, Ian Malcolm World? like his like broken leg and can't walk. And like the boy who got like blasted yeah, by the, Tim the is destroyed. Tim from the electrical fence. Like, you know, like and but that also adds then to the suspense because we know that the people, people aren't like die. walking. And that's that's the other thing that I do not like forgive this movie for. I was like, you're so soft, you can't even kill one of these stupid supporting characters. Let alone probably in this movie, it's gonna, if it's gonna be the final, we probably should have lost like a bigger name. Like Ian Malcolm or something, yeah. Maybe one of like, the original three. No, but like what, the whole scene with the Gigantosaurus, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be the heroic. I thought I thought Malcolm was gonna have a heroic last stand. He's gonna stand do the thing correctly this time, yeah. and it's like, no, I'm a badass. I'm throwing it down its throat as like a flamethrower spear, <laughs> and then it's spewing like, fire from its so, mouth. So, so like, this is and the burnt locust. Like, oh my goodness, the burnt no, locust flying in the air that set yes. fire. This leads to my other thing, which is that this movie has no original set pieces. The set piece, well, it has one set piece I give some credit. And Have we'll, you I'll seen Burnt Locust before? No. Setting fire? No, but uh, the, the, the scene, no, like, the what are the big scenes in this? It's the the showdown 
at the ending between yes. the Gigantosaurus and the T-Rex, and it's the Ian Malcolm doing the flair thing again with the Gigantosaurus yep. as well. And in both those instances, the scene is, has no conception except for repetition. But then it repeats it on a lower level. Like in the original, right, it's Ian Malcolm screws up and he starts running over here, over here. And yeah, then yeah. Alan Grant's like, what are you doing? I've, I was going to get the T-Rex to go away. And he just gets almost killed for it, yeah. right? And then in the uh, Jurassic World ending, it's the T-Rex fighting. T-Rex can't beat the Indominus Rex. Hey, it's got the Ichthyosaurus to help it or the Mosasaur or whatever. And then it actually beats it. This the repeats it where it has the, the T-Rex claws. with the uh, Therizinosaurus, which I think is the coolest dinosaur this movie, the far and away. The big claws. Which one's that one? He's the, the one Chinese with the super one with the big claws. claws. Yeah. The claw These hands. are new dinosaurs that they found in China in the last 25 years or so. Wow. It's the animal with the longest claws in history. It's like three foot long claws. He like teams up with... And I thought that was... <laughs> I'm like, I like dinos rumbling. It's fun. It's stupid. But again, it's like you're repeating something from your first movie and you're doing it half-assed where like, you know, yeah, it's good. You're correcting from the mistake of Jurassic Park 3. You don't kill the T-Rex. You never kill the T-Rex. That's the rule. Did they kill him in the third one? Yeah, Spinosaurus kills him. That's one of They're the worst like, parts of that movie. It is. It's unforgivable. Well, I don't even Spinosaurus remember. breaks T-Rex's neck and I, it so makes me so angry still because T-Rex is set up in all these movies as not a bad guy. T-Rex actually often saves the heroes. Like at the end of the first one when the raptors yes. are going. T-Rex yeah. is like a misunderstood King Kong. Yeah. type figure, especially in the second one. But, and so in this one, it has, you know, of course, you have to have T-Rex beat Gigantosaurus, even though it makes no sense, and th with the help of Therizinosaurus. But it's like, basically, the characters are like, oh, we gotta get here. Oh, something fell on us. Oh, wait, it's easy. Let's just get on the plane and fly away. It's like, there, <laughs> there's, what is the conception here? You have this big space. How are we gonna use it? Uh, they just go from this line to this line. Like, you know what I mean? It's just so So they wasted all the time on the Malta scene. So I want to touch on something before we shift uh, gears here. It's just we haven't talked really much about the... Does does any of the nostalgia stuff work? Because I think you, what you were alluding to, Aaron, is the way that a lot of the even the action set pieces in this repeat previous action scenes, right? So you have the Ian Malcolm doing the, the flare thing again. You even have uh, Dodgson, spoiler alert, meeting his end same way as Dennis I Nancy. like that more. I like that one more. It's weird, but it's because we haven't had Dodgson at all in the others ones. That it, having him here and then the repetition of Wayne Knight and stuff, and I'm like, that that's kind of fun. It, it's more yes. in the spirit of the original because partially because it's nastier. Anders and I we saw Jurassic World Dominion and then Top Gun after and sort of a double header, which was awesome to see two movies in a row again. Afterwards, I you know I had some thoughts and I jotted some notes and I was like I was thinking about nostalgia in these films and how it operates. Like so, we might think of you know. Legacy sequels, sequels in general, right? There's a horizontal... On one level, they're, they're, they function horizontally. They're an extension, right, of the chronology of whatever is going on in the film world. And then, and then there's the vertical dimension. Does it deepen or add to anything also going back? And I felt like the way, um, the way Jurassic World Dominion engages with the earlier Jurassic Park, it's almost all surface level. There's almost no vertical engagement it's almost all horizontal even so all the all the moments that engage with the old things are simply like repetitions it's almost just like right it's like the i don't know the stone skipping on the pond it's just hitting the next beat and doing that again but it's not but doing less. but less the, the stone less only skips time. a little bit less each time exactly and then yeah. it stops and sinks and but there's no like those most of the repetitions in jurassic world dominion like one they 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 almost add nothing to the film this film 
And then they also don't really alter or affect the earlier film or deepen her understanding mm. or, or enhance her understanding of some aspect of a character. The only thing it does is retcon to make sure that Alan and Ellie get together. That's yeah. It. Yeah, which would be probably the only thing that like it's doing or to actually sort of really alter those characters in yeah. some sense. I didn't like that in three that it broke them up. The I think you're onto something there that there's nothing. On the, maybe on the bright side is that there's nothing here that really ruins my nostalgia for the originals or, or anyway. yeah, because it's, it's, not bad it's enough totally to disposable in one sense, right? And yet it, it does not actually capitalize on that nostalgia significantly enough for me to like be like I really like it the way I might even like a you know Star Wars film or something like that, right? At all, even unlike. Top Gun Maverick. Well, I'm gonna get to uses that. Uses nostalgia really well. It does, and even I wasn't, for a movie that you don't love. But exactly. Can I, so can I say though that like in terms of even like seeing these older characters, like it has a little bit of that like Force Awakens, where it's like, why do we when we bring back these characters who we love in an earlier film? What's the idea of always making them like worser versions than almost they were before? <laughs> and what I mean by that is not just on like a, you know, that maybe the character's not written as well, but like like you know, Han Solo has to become kind of like a deadbeat dad. And Luke Skywalker is someone who, like, loses his faith. It's because they're rebooting. You're going back to a base zero you can Remember, build Remember, I, I talk about this in my... lose what you've built up. I do talk about that in my Force Awakens review from our retrospective, that as soon as you do this, you have to undo the happy ending. You have to introduce new conflicts. And, and you growth. Have to but it's de- interesting. Or degrowth, it's, yeah. But it's interesting that so in this, where it's, it's, trying, it's trying to add... A happy ending for Ellie and Alan, but at the same time, it's just like and Owen and Claire. Yes, but like, but so, but like, but like, Alan doesn't essentially get like he just sort of seems he's just like a he gets to just he's be like kind of a washed yeah. up, a washed I'll up. I'll come with you, Ellie. I'm coming with you. That's the like the final line that's supposed to mean a lot, and you're like, okay. But I'm glad he I'm glad he says that. But my thing is, when we even meet him at the start of this thing, you're like, none of these characters are ever allowed to have like achieved more. They always have to kind of like fall into obscurity and like lose any sort of ability and or even Ian Malcolm has to be like uh I, I, the I took the version. no or I took the paycheck even though I don't believe in any of this I'm just lecturing them about how bad they are but hey I got five kids and but was he really lecturing right? I guess that raises the question whether he was or if that was all of I feel like it was all a cover with him and Wes uh what but Wes maybe it wasn't and then they, they developed paid. the plan Ramsey, while they Ramsey. were there I think him and Ramsey he wouldn't have known Ramsey before he got there. So maybe he actually had a change while he's there with Ramsey. And Ramsey was actually probably, I liked him probably the best yes. of the supporting characters. I like that actor a lot. He's the main character from Archive 81, and he's a good oh, actor. Cool. And he actually, like, I was just happy that the character, like, one, had useful function for the storyline. And he had ethics. <laughs> had ethics. And then also had, like, like he actually had his own little, like, personality in arc. He kind of has his hero moment, and it's nice. Mm-hmm. And they don't undo it or, like, punish him for the mistake he made as a young guy working for Dodge Center. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so in comparing, maybe maybe as a bridge point, but it's like comparing the, the, the nostalgia, right? So nostalgia as, like, a, what, like an emotion you elicit. Um, this, like, Jurassic World Dominion only uses nostalgia as essentially as, like, an appetite that you exploit, an appetite that the Draws audience you holds, in, but that's it. that you exploit to bring you into the crowd, into the theater, and then also, or an appetite to trigger for a momentary, short-lived pleasure. So, we get, um, you know, these, these repetitive cues that we've talked about. He's going to wave the flag, and it really has no meaning, but the pleasure is this, just this short little hit of, like, oh, I recognize, I recognize that. Which is what Marvel movies do, right? 
Yes, and well, Marvel, I Marvel does comic. that a lot. I've read That's that character. They reward you and pat you on the head for knowing stuff. Whereas Top Gun makes nostalgia is both pain and pleasure in Top Gun because memory is both pain and pleasure. Right. So looking back, right, like that movie's the characters are both haunted by the memories of the past, but then there's also like the affection of seeing the old friend. Or, or and huh. for the audience of well, retreading, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's talk. Let's talk now. about Top Gun here. Your instructor is one of the finest pilots this program has ever produced. His exploits are legendary. What he has to teach you may very well mean the difference between life and death. So, you know, like I said, we've talked about how Jurassic World relies on our affections to draw us in and try to create a positive effect uh, in watching the movie. But I found Top Gun Maverick different in that, as I mentioned earlier, I, I never thought the original was one of top Tom Cruise or even Tony Scott's best films. Um, like I said, it has a certain dumb jock appeal and entertaining camp homoerotic element that everyone always makes fun of since Quentin Tarantino has famously noted it. But Maverick managed to outdo my expectations. It, uh, you know, there's still a nostalgia element. It has the cool, iconic Harold Faltermeyer theme with the like ringing bells and the like, you know, electric guitar. But uh, and this time I actually really loved. I love Hans Zimmer's cool synth added onto it. It's actually I think the score is even better. But it's and it's still blatantly American military propaganda to some extent. I mean, they didn't set up Navy recruiting things outside, but it's obviously has a belief in a certain sense of like military duty and stuff, you know. But at the same time, it's leaning into this thematic notion that it's a last gasp, and both for the pilots and for action cinema, and that complicates both our uh, nostalgic feeling about the film, but it also complicates even I think to some degree, maybe a little bit. The, the whether it sees uh, uh, you know the military as an unambiguous good in the sense that maybe Aaron this we could get into it's a bit more like the Michael Bay like the stru- these structures are valuable but ultimately they do work against individuals in some way I don't know maybe I'm reading too much into it I just I really enjoyed it but um, even if you know if it's propaganda lots of movies are propaganda but this one it, it never feels like it's trying to have one over on me and trick me into believing something. It's pretty open about it, you know, when you have a big American flag in a hangar. Um, so, but the more importantly, the film plays into the iconography of Tom Cruise over the last two decades. You know, the man who never stops running, as his Twitter bio says, running in films since 1981, uh, doing death-defying stunts for real. Honestly, it shows on the screen. Both times watching this, you can feel the speed, you can feel the G-forces. This does not feel like CGI... Uh, you know, obviously there's some, you know, special effects, obviously, and things like that, but uh, it, you, you feel it. I even love the opening with the dark, testing the dark star, the SR-71 Blackbird mock yeah. oh, test. Yeah. So good. So, what do you think, Anton? Am I a hypocrite for falling so hard for this dumb, uh, big dumb movie with its heart on its sleeve, or is there something more to it? So, unlike you, I didn't see Top Gun, like, when it came out right away. I only first saw it last Sunday night. I, I tweeted out that, I was like, thank you, film Twitter. Top Gun Maverick was everything you promised. And that to me is just like, it's hap- I was happy to go see one of these big movies. And it just delivered what I wanted. 
and it, it lived up to the expectations. It's not saying that this movie is like the best movie ever. I don't adore it, but it's easily one of the more enjoyable experiences I've had in the movie theaters in a long time. And it's just such a solid, well-engineered blockbuster. And I appreciate the fact that its character dynamics are not overly ambitious, but they achieve all that they're trying to achieve. We care about the characters. It's an exciting mission. We understand everything that the story is trying to tell us. So it's a great, it's a great um, blockbuster movie. And it was just really, it, it was better probably than I was actually expecting, even after all of your guys's praise and like everyone else's praise. Like I was just pleased that it actually lived up to the expectations. And you're like, it's weird that a movie like this is such an outlier. I know. And really like, it's not like, you know, a movie like this is not an outlier for Hollywood, but why is it such an outlier today? Like, why is it them? Like, yeah. Like you're just like, you like cheer these cliched storylines because they're just, they're unambitious and they're just telling, but they're like done well. No, because it's, it's, um, we're here to entertain. Like, that's kind of the Tom yeah. Cruise mindset, right? The movie has a relationship and a responsibility towards the person going to see it, which is actually not a thing in most blockbusters. Yeah. They have a relationship to the corporate desires and the products. And, it, like, this is a product. This is a sequel. This is a franchise film. It's all those things. It's just Tom Cruise is such a psycho he makes sure everybody else is on board for the fact that, like, the number one important thing here is that we give a good time to the people mm -hmm. that go see the movie. And we're not going to give them a good time by, like, we're going to manipulate them into making sure they see the next movie that comes out. It's like, no, no, no. We this have to give them their money's worth with this movie. This is, this, yes, and I, I, I very much agree that in terms of a contrast with the Marvel movies and a lot of these other franchise ones, like, this movie is just, like, who knows? It's made so much money that maybe they will go for a third one. But you're like, you don't feel like the movie's just designed to reboot an extended franchise. It's just like the point of it is this movie. Mm -hmm. this yeah. movie. In fact, I would say that if this film whets the appetite for anything else, it's going to juice the box office of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning massively because audiences yeah. are ready for Tom Cruise doing classic Hollywood action stuff. And, and, you know, so it's not necessarily just the, the top gun, you know, that brought some people in, but like, I think people are like, okay, we're ready for the, you know, this insanely high budget, you know, the, I heard, I think I read Dead Reckoning part one and two have like, cost like $400 million or something like insane. So people are going to be like, okay, he, he delivered with, uh, Kaczynski and, and, uh, Maverick. So we will go see that. But you're also right that like this movie... So the other achievement of this movie is that it doesn't just score for Top Gun fans. Like, so we can't under, like, none of, none of us three were, like, huge Top Gun fans, like, growing up or anything. I've seen it. I liked it fine. I But it was never, like, one of my favorite of those 80s blockbusters. I think Top Gun Ma Maverick is a better movie. Oh, yeah. But then also the thing is just, like, if you look at, like, the, the box office on this, why the why it's achieving the level it is right now, right? It's 900, last check, it's 900 million worldwide so it's going to pass a billion at some point it's almost 500,000 domestics so it's 475 million domestic and like last weekend it was like 15% drop off so this movie has legs unlike other stuff seen, seen since so the, the angle on that is that it's the angle is just that like this movie's appealing not it's already covered all all the people who love top gun have already seen it what it's doing now is it's bringing in me the people who are like you know what like 
everyone's telling me I need to see Top Gun. That is really good. Even our friend who came with us, right? Like, yeah, yeah. The he, non, was, he, non he hasn't film seen bus. a movie really in theaters this year. He was like, I gotta come see this, and it was like, and he loved it. He was like, thanks for bringing me to the movie. So like, I think, and it's just nice to see in a summer movie where like people are actually. It's not like so like the other thing is just like seeing both. I mean, both Jurassic World and then more so the Marvel. Like you almost feel like I'm starting to feel this like pressure of like oh i gotta go see like the blockbuster where this one where you're like you know like i don't know two years ago when i saw the trailers like i didn't even know if i'd see it like because i'm not like a huge top gun fan but i'm like i was brought in i was like yeah you know this was better than i expected so what are some of the specific elements that like i think one of the things that's obviously better than the original is the action like shooting the actual actors you know putting tom cruise and miles teller and the others in the cockpit of a plane and <laughs> slamming them with g-forces and stuff oh, yeah. it's is fun die. you know someone i forget who wrote this someone some of the critic i read talked about like even like there's a tactility of like at one point i think it's bob call sign bob like he puts his hand on the like hood like the the, the dome of the cockpit because he's like trying to see something and it's like if there's a tactility there that I a lot of films yeah wouldn't you know you wouldn't have that in another movie Good morning, aviators. This is your captain speaking. Welcome to basic fighter maneuvers. As briefed, today's exercise is dogfighting. Guns only, no missiles. We do not go below the hard deck of 5,000 feet. Working as a team, you have to shoot me down or else. Or else what, sir? Or else I shoot back. If I shoot either one of you down, you both lose. This guy needs an ego check. We'll see to that. Sir, what's up? We put some skin in the game. What do you have in mind? Whoever gets shot down first has to do 200 push-ups. <laughs> Guys, that's a lot of push-ups. Well, uh, they don't call it an exercise for nothing, sir. You got yourself a deal, gentlemen. Lights on. Let's turn and burn. And I'm like, that is that points to those kind of things. But then also, like, even when you're outside of the, uh, you know, the airplane scenes, Anson, you mentioned it just looks really nice. It has that glowing California look. This is a great California beach, you know, kind of feel. The you know the even the sailing scenes between uh, oh, Pen Penny nice and uh, Maverick, you know, and I actually appreciate that this is also a film that you have the young people, but it's also you know people who are a bit older. It has a, like a, that sort of like you know picking up with this romance from when you're young and. It, it's cliched and you know, there's nothing like particularly notable about it other than it's like allowing regular people to enjoy a sort of regular romance between two mature actors like yeah and uh, like i was seeing to my wife that was like i really liked like the tom cruise jennifer connelly relationship in it partly because like one it's not it doesn't try to be more than it needs to be so it's not it's not it's not the main motivation or emotional you know um anchor in the film and but it also like it's also not trying to be like too much like it's no, not it's not trying to be like overly sexy in like a lame way like it just like it just sort of works you get the sense that kind like of building on regular their... people romance kind of moments yeah like you know but also it what it does serve narratively though is and the other in fact the the, the scene in the movie that makes you know brings a tear to your eye and, and draws on real life biography is Val Kilmer's appearance as you know Iceman, yeah. Iceman, who they've written in that he's dying of throat cancer, just as Val Kilmer has cancer. You know that that relationship between Ice and Maverick then becomes sort of thing. And so when he loses Ice, you know Penny's there to be like you. You know you didn't have a family, you didn't have anyone else. Yeah. You know he needs that to ground him in a way. 
in a sense, because yeah. he's going to be grounded at the end of this, right? Like, he's no longer going to fly. So what grounds Maverick is a real human being in a relationship. But what, so in the, when talking about Jurassic World Dominion and, you know, extending it to the Star Wars movies and other nostalgia stuff, we got, you, you both brought up that it lessens the characters when they bring them back. It always flattens. It, it reduces them to a base zero point that they can grow again. It kind of undoes whatever is there. This is a perfect example of growing upon what's insinuated in the first one. Like, Iceman and Maverick only embrace at the end of the original Top Gun. They're not buddies until the very end yeah. when they now are, we're brothers, like, we're the wingmen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this movie is like, oh, what would be the 20-year extension or 30-year extension of that? It, it doesn't like, oh, there's like an adversarial thing that has to be overcome because the younger generation has that but with Hangman and Rooster, yeah. right? Yeah. This is what it looks like if you imagine a maturing friendship between yeah. individuals yeah. that becomes meaningful late in life. Right, and one friend went on to have a family and pursue the career to the highest level of the Admiralty, and the other friend didn't. Held he on. he held but then on it also, to the past. Yeah. It also writes... So, but he's living for him. But it also writes, like, right, it also writes Maverick's, um, his stasis really well, right? Like, his character and what he's doing is trying to, he's been trying to be the exact same guy that he is in the first Top Gun. But he can't And we see that when we, but he can't, and we also see the consequences of that, and the fact that the rest of the world is, like, is beating up against that, right? This, again, like, this is, this is a, this is a smart, um, engagement with the prior work. It has, it has vertical depth. And dimension or and possibly even enhancement right so like if we go if i go back now and watch the first top gun i might have a different view a better of, of ice man and maverick's like relationship because i know what it's going to grow to later. and even uh um, goose, goose and, maverick. and maverick yeah with with the sun you're right and i thought anders made a great uh, after the movie like you made a great like reference point of like it's also another of these like in a non-pejorative sense right these male melodramas that are actually like mm-hmm. quite um, quite good, like uh, your beloved Creed. I will. I, maybe I'll make a, a comment to how this does contrast with Creed, uh, which is that, and, and it fits in with this being a Tom Cruise movie first and foremost, right? Creed allowed Stallone to play an important, the sort of you know fatherly yep. role coming in to help the son of the dead friend, and but then sort of he's you know the idea is that he sort of steps back and allows Don, Donnie to like take the stage right and be the hero. It's Creed is the movie. This is not Rooster, you know. It's not Top Gun Rooster. It's still about Maverick, right? Yeah, because, no, because I know. but that but that's because this is a movie star movie. I don't I, I don't know if I would say like Top Gun Maverick is a smart film, but it's like an extremely competent professional film. In the storytelling, because it's it's it re- well engineered. It relies, yeah. You gotta just use as many playing cliches as mm-hmm, possible. Exactly. Less than this. It's a well-oiled machine. It is. It flies straight and true. Um, <laughs> the lines of the plot are all smooth and aerodynamic. It hits its target. <laughs> yes, exactly. All these things, but I think what it is is that again, it's a movie that wants to be a movie, and it's it movie tells world. a story yeah. like a movie. And it exists as a movie. Like it's it's it's. It doesn't want to be TV. Is, it's <laughs> but it also doesn't want to be realistic. TV. Yeah, realism. It's, movie it's not political commentary. It's not, it's got all those elements of '90s and you know earlier cinema that we're so kind of cherish as we talk about on this podcast. But in the storytelling, right? As you said, Anders, Maverick's the main character, not Rooster. Rooster is there because the relationship is very important with Maverick. But it's so when you're constructing a classic tried and true three act Hollywood movie you identify the main character and you create a story web 
all the other characters in the movie have to make some reflection back on that main character. They have to serve a story purpose or elucidate some aspect of that individual's personality or create some kind of conflict. Every single character in this movie does that. They're always feeding back because it has to, the thing has to move forward, has to create conflict, build interest, pay it off. And it all, whether it's the romance, whether it's the relationship with the rooster, whether it's the mission, all these actual constructions are extremely conventional. But because so few Hollywood movies want to construct their stories like this, it's extremely satisfying to have a movie that's like, hey, it wants to entertain me and it wants to make me feel something about the the um, relationship being healed between this guy and his surrogate son. It makes me want to feel something about this man having to check a second chance at love and these things. It builds all those, but as you say, it's like the romance is not the whole thing. You know, we, we, we talked about Doctor Strange on the last one, and there's a romantic element in the first movie, and there's this kind of lost love aspect in the second one. Yep. But in a Marvel movie, it can only react... Romances are like, this is the be-all and end-all of this character. This is the thing that, it, you know, it's Mary Jane... It's MJ and Spidey, right? It's, it's the consuming aspect, or there's no hint of romance. And it's this idea of, in this film, it's like, well, the most important thing in the movie is not whether he gets Penny... No. Because she's a character also with her own life. Who cares? Yes, but she's in this film there to support and contrast and build the character and build the conflict and make us invest in the movie. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thing that I come down to. It's the movie is very adamant that we're invested because it wants to deliver. Yes. And it delivers. And that also has to do this, I think what you're describing about the, the narrative in relation to character in relation to Maverick in particular is our protagonist. It really is only possible because this movie has no long game. And I remember early in the in the development of the MCU, people would talk about, oh, Marvel's playing the long game. It's amazing. And now we've discovered that, right, the the long game's just a gulag, right? We're trapped All the in. origin stories are the best ones. Mm-hmm. But they, they, so they can't do this. And this again, like, you know, to go to the Star Wars prequels, imagine if we had told a story where, you know, Luke Skywalker had been able to be Maverick in this. And you create your story web with new characters, but the focal point is not about building out a whole series that will go on and on, but it's to actually say, like, what's this character, Luke Skywalker, doing at this later point? Like, the way that this movie's interested in what is Maverick doing at this point. So what I'm just seeing is, like, you're totally right that this is a, uh, it's relying on sort of tried and true Hollywood screenwriting, but it's also... What it shows is that that tried and true Hollywood screenwriting can be in conflict with the necessities of like of the franchise logic that that a lot of these films require. And this movie avoids a lot of that franchise logic. It is a it is a legacy um, sequel. You know, it is a diegetic reboot in some sense. But it, maybe it's not a reboot because it's only trying to reboot one. As far as we no, can tell, no, it's it's a sequel. You're right. We could probably just read this as a classic sequel. Just long delayed. The legacy sequel thing there is because it is repeating elements of the first movie. But it comes up thematically, right? Like because we get the moments, like you know, Anders mentioned the 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 talk about sort of the irrelevancy of the planes that we're all going to move to drones in the future. And again, like that's not the main point of the plot, but it's brought in because that enhances also our understanding of this film's relationship to other stuff. And I, I, I also thought Anders talked about, you know, like you, we can describe it as propaganda, but I think we should also just describe this. This movie's patriotic in a way that movies yep. aren't today. Like this movie, the point of the movie isn't um, to sell you on anything, but it obviously has a deep and abiding affection for the United States of America. And its institutions yeah, and military, yeah. in a way that most 
Like, I just feel like, I mean, to me, that there's almost a nostalgia for that in the sense of, like, the movie, even though the movie's starting to flirt with this idea that perhaps some of the people who are running the institutions do not have um, the best plan in mind. Right, but the individual people can still be good. Yeah. So it's, it's starting to make that bridge, but there there's almost a nostalgia for this, for a lost world where it's like, yes. where, where, where the, we would trust in these institutions. I want to build on that for a second, because I think one of the interesting ways this film uses nostalgia is that the nostalgic and sort of referential elements aren't always to Top Gun, right? So the most obvious is that the main uh, mission they have to go on is basically, let's build a real life uh, Death Star trench run yep. that yep. they have to run. They have to you know, fly through the trench and drop the bomb. And if they don't hit the target perfectly, you know, it's all, it's all going to be done. That there's that. So there's that sort of star Wars and star, but that's partly also because star Wars is also built on the fighter pilot movies like Dam busters and stuff like that, that top gun is also drawing on right with the X-wing pilots. The other part is actually the intro to the film. We find that, you know, one of the ways that Maverick has stuck around is he's now a test pilot for, uh, you know, Lockheed. Lockheed. He's clearly working at Area 51 also. He's kind of a, a man of the past. He's kind of a, the right stuff kind of guy, right? And that's yep. what that plays off that whole, the whole like, these guys who are pushing the limits of these these vehicles. And, and even having Ed Harris as Admiral Kane there is the, to the old, uh, the film, the 80s film of the right stuff. The Admiral that you see pulling up is played by Ed Harris, who is someone I've always wanted to work with. It's no coincidence that he also happens to be in The Right Stuff, playing John Glenn, which was obviously a huge influence on this sequence and a, and a huge influence on me as a kid when I saw it. So there's that. And it does deliver also one of my, my the best gag sort of lines in the, the film, when he, he asks the kid in the diner, where am I? The kid says, Earth. Yeah. I, I but that, that itself, I that, it, no, right? it's great, but it's also a throwback to... Like almost like a different America, right? Exactly. And the whole point is that diner is a different America. It's like, yeah. he's like, where am I? What what, what year? It's, you know, maybe it was like a bit of Twin Peaks. What year is it? So I think that that connects both the nostalgia and also to the, it's sort of nostalgia for a different past uh, when American pilots could still be like, you know, testing these vehicles and it wasn't all just, uh, you know, cynical uh, things. It was like, no, we're going to create a space program. We're going to create planes that can do the coolest stuff, you know. In the the idealism of the, of the yeah, technology, the, six, right? the idealism of the six, 50s and 60s. I and think. you using the technology for things, right? I mean, like, these are these are weapons for war. Like, you're building that, but but there was this sort of, like, there's this just also the fascination with whether you can build it, right. whether you can make it, whether you can do it. And it's interesting, as, I mean, to contrast that with how Jurassic Park deals with that. But, like, you know, it's just interesting, this v film's view of technology, where it's, like, um, on the one hand, right, like, there is that specter of the, the specter of the drone future is a, is a thing in the film. It's interesting. The wars of the future will not be fought on a battlefield or at sea. They will be fought in space. Or possibly on top of a very tall mountain. In either case, most of the actual fighting will be done by small robots. And as you go forth today, remember always, your duty is clear, to build and maintain those robots. In terms of technology in, in this film, it's interesting that, like, so there's not only the specter of the drones, but there's also the sense that, like, it really emphasizes throughout the mission that the real difference is, like, the person in the cockpit. So as much as by drawing on sort of the right stuff and sort of the 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 tech uh, of like you know like building this new like you know the film loves the technology that they're using the aviation mm -hmm. technology but it also recognizes that the core element to it is the pilot the human yep. who in, embodies it 
and that that's what sets it distinct from I think a lot of like visions of technology for the future, which mm-hmm. makes it like an older. It's not that it will conform people to meet that that future technology. It's actually that the technology ultimately is to service the person. But that's also where the the movie acts against some of the propaganda elements within that, um, with the individual, which again, you know, it's a classic American story, the idea of the frontier, the man pushing, that he's going to, he's going to form the, the good out of the nothing or whatnot. But it's just funny with all these technologies and, and how the movie bakes in, um, so much about the history of, um, specifically like aerial warfare in the, in the United States within the f- different modes of this film without actually engaging at all, but like having the Lockheed test stuff, Having Top Gun Academy itself, having the um, engagement with kind of you know f- what is it fifth gen fifth fighters. gen fighters yeah versus your your F eighteen and they were like and they were like and you they're like we can't use the F thirty five because it doesn't work for this mission well they don't work for dogfights that's the thing they're not they're made for like aerial cover it's just funny because it it shows a deep understanding of the actual history of like aerial combat in the United States and how the fact that the Top Gun school itself, which does exist, was born out of the fact that in the 60s, the Israelis captured a MiG fighter, sent it to Area 51. The American, the CIA and the Air Force like retconned the whole fighter, figured out how to, why was it destroying us so bad in Vietnam? We got to figure out how to do this and we have to train our pilots, our pilots to be better than the MiGs. And then you create this school out of that, right? Yep. And then this movie is like tapping into, but it gets to a point, right, with the actual war machine. War machine doesn't care about pilots. It really is the Ed Harris character. It is drones entirely. And so that's why some people's like, oh, I, you know, the drone thing in there is just kind of this like thematic. It, it's kind of like, like, I didn't need that in there. It's like, no, no, that's actually central to this whole thing. And the whole idea of this is the last rodeo. This is the last go. These are the last pilots. He's the last movie star. It might be the last blockbuster you ever see. And this is the last time you might ever see America on screen that is not a Kane Empire. And so it's like this movie is propaganda only in the sense that it is nostalgic and willfully going against the obvious reality of what America is right at this moment, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it chooses, we know it, we acknowledge that those things are a thing because we have the testing, we have the drones, we have this, and we're going to say, no, not today, not today. Yeah, there are so many little moments where the film pushes back against like the modern sensibility, even the fact that Penny has the thing where, like, if you put your cell phone on yes. the uh, yeah. bar counter, yeah. you have to buy around, get out, you know, like, it's, like, against that idea of technology coming between human interaction. It's aware of what it's doing. It knows the legacy it's working in. And at, unlike most movies, um, it's not cynical. No, in fact, it. I, I was going to point out, I mentioned the music. I do think that the uh, so it ends with uh, so Tom Cruise actually reached out and recruited Lady Gaga to to work. She doesn't just do the song; she actually worked on some of the music with Zimmer. Yeah. She's actually credited as one of the three score writers. But her final sort of uh, the the sort of power ballad love song at the end, the "Hold My Hand," which sort of uh, is so, it has a soaring kind of feel and it's really big. I I, I laugh that it's like this should be the. Uh, you know, the new version of I Don't Want to Miss a Thing from Armageddon, right? It's like mm-hmm. from this very masculine kind of action movie, but it's the, the, the melodramatic song that, you know, kind of 
tearjerker, very kind of like, uh, you know, you, you, they'll play it at a wedding, you know, kind of thing. Get everyone on the dance floor. It has that both, it's a slow build and then has that like big power, you know, and Lady Gaga can do that because she has the good singing voice. Can I say that the, the presence of that song actually clarified, like you just saying this right now, kind of clarifies something for me, which leads into the the cynical thing but it's just this is a movie that wants you to feel things real things when watching it it doesn't it's it's not playing for the like reference spot this spot that it's not playing for the holier than thou i'm the insider and i understand it it's playing for like you're a human being and you love stories and you love excitement and romance and action and we're going to give it to you many movies today and it's something that i've tweeted about that I find distasteful about much as film Twitter, sorry folks, is this idea that you have to be smarter or better than the films that you watch, even if you say you love classics. It's like, the, 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 you know, the key tweet that I, I picked on was that someone was like, ah, I, every time I watch Casablanca, it always gets to me. And I'm like, that's the wrong attitude. You should want to embrace that romance and that amazingness. And this is a film not for people who want to feel smarter or better in the film, because you can pick on this and pick on that. This is a film for people who want to be caught up in the sensation of a big fun summer movie that has a heart to it but also you can't you can't be better than the movie because tom cruise is better than you (laughs) (laughs) and i i have to also say like i just love seeing a big action movie that also has realistic stakes and scope yeah it's like we're, we're on a mission it's not to save the entire world let alone the like the galaxy but it's literally like we just gotta do this mission you know tom cruise the invention is like now he's an ace he has five kills like, you know, and that's the reality of, like, being a fighter pilot and stuff. But you're, like, it's it's actually, like, it's so refreshing to have, like, that kind of grounding in an action film. So, let me throw the question out there to both of you. Are summer movies back? Did they ever go away? Or, as Maverick is suggesting, this may be the last gasp that it's, like, perhaps, but not today. I don't want to play the prediction game at all anymore. I'm at, basically at the point I want to abstain. I want to plead the fifth. <laughs> Um, uh, I, why do you I have a podcast? Movie, <laughs> no, but this movie is a it's a summer movie, and but this was supposed to come out in twenty twenty, right? And there's something there to it, right? It it's a, it's almost like we're getting this out of a different past. The movie of a different uh, an alternate it's an alternate it's an alternate timeline. It's the twenty twenty yeah. film that could have. But been. would it have been the biggest film of twenty twenty had it come out? I don't know. No, I don't. No, think it I don't would've. think so because I think actually the two years of knowledge about it coming helped it really well they were smart pushing it mm-hmm. and you know however much i bemoan, two more years of weariness no but however much i bemoan like uh hollywood movies and what's happening you know i get caught up in hollywood movies obviously like yeah dune in the dune in the fall is like one of my favorite movies ever and things that excite me you know tenet two years ago i thought it was a great summer movie and i feel like in a different summer it would have been an awesome experience to see with the packed house of people being like what is going on I'm yeah so that that's that's another of those like summer 2020 like what could have been without the pandemic yeah. i actually think tenant might have been like a huge hit because it was just such a bizarre crazy but concept. my com- my comment is that i don't think the summer movie is back uh, okay if you're forcing me i'm gonna say i don't think the summer movie's back because i don't think there's anything specific to summer as a season anymore within mm. the film calendar that gives it priority over anything else and i actually think in some ways christmas is the one time where you can kind of force the four quadrant down people's throats and as we got with spider-man no way home this past season we're gonna get with avatar this year and my sense is that with people there's a more of a nowadays there's more of a a feeling that like 
you know, around Christmas time, you're like, everyone wants to go see a movie at some point in a way that Mm -hmm. throughout the summer, like depending on what's playing, there's a lot of people I know who might not even go to the theater. This movie might be one of the rare exceptions where they will. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be a thing going forward. And I think the fact that Christmas, right, is or like the holiday season in in December is the one time when people are gathering with each other and they want to actually have an activity. So it's movies as an action and not movies just as content, right? Yep. And so that's the constant thing that movies are struggling against right now. What's content? What's actual cinema? I think we might over be over over if you're like going back and listening to us on this podcast over the last two years, we might be overstating the strength of streaming as we see with Netflix mm-hmm. stock crashing like hard. And I think streaming is probably going to end. The question is like movie theaters are probably not coming back. No. So well, the current the current con- the current configuration of streaming yeah so it's something will, new will will change but new. I think viewing from home is the primary will be going forward and like I, I I partly because of my I guess pessimism like I do feel like that this movie is sort of that like maybe like a last gasp at sort of what a summer movie was I think even like you know I don't want to open up too much new stuff right now but like even the fact that like um, the Lightyear movie sort of flopped this past weekend and showing that like there's not even necessarily the uh the box office for sort of like those family animated movies is not even necessarily a reliant and the uh, we've mentioned this before but i really think like the point where like a marvel movie completely flops will change completely upend everything whenever that happens like it's like the stock market right at some point it will happen i'm not going to predict that it's thor or whatever but it it will not go on forever and that will alter and then something will come on so it, it was nice. It was nice while we had it. The end is inevitable, Maverick. The kind is headed for extinction. Maybe so, sir. But not today. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month on Three Brothers Filmcast. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>